0: today.
1: Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Alda. And this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: Even in grad schools, I had dreadlocks, and I had my way of talking, and, you know, a Trinidadian-Bronx accent. Kind of kooky in my own way, I still am. Many of my classmates, I mean, some even admitted to me today, they, like, they read me in this way as if, like, Stefan is not smart, he's not really a physicist, he doesn't, he's not, doesn't fit the bill.
1: That's Stefan Alexander. After that rocky start, he went on to a notable career as a theoretical physicist, where he blends his passion for jazz with his research into the exotic worlds of cosmology and quantum gravity. A professor at Brown University, he heads the Stefan Alexander Theory Lab. I'm very eager to talk with you because your work gives a fresh look at communication, which I care about a lot. But also at music, at the way the universe is made. And I, I think even at thinking itself, a fresh look at all of those things. Let me, let me start with communication. You love analogies, don't you? Yes. I always think of Richard Feynman when he was explaining physics. He would say, I'm only telling you part of the story. I'll tell you more later. And I'm always afraid that analogies only tell you part of the story. That's right. But why, why are they valuable to you?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, in fact, one of the people that inspired that analogical thinking um, was Feynman, you know, in his writing. I, I grew up reading, um, you know, surely a joking, Mr. Feynman, who cares, you know, all these books that Feynman wrote. And he made it, yeah, he would make it very clear that there's a deeper story here. There is much more to unveil. And that was precisely what then made me more curious.
1: In a way, the familiarity, it sounds like you're saying the familiarity of making an analogy to something from our everyday life gives us a an open doorway to the further mysteries that the analogy doesn't cover.
2: Right. Yes.
1: So how does that work for the structure of the universe? That's, that sounds like a, a wonderful leap, that music is an analogy for the universe, which I, I think is one of your real contributions to thinking about the universe.
2: Yes. And the thing that's interesting for that was, you know, I came at that because I had a life in music and I had a life in physics. And those were two worlds I was taught and I also, um, you know, lived to not really talk to each other. Um, But out of, I don't know what it was, uh, an instinct, I, I felt the need to bring those two worlds together, at least in my own thinking, to discover uh, you know, the one way of doing that was to write a book about it. But and and as I was doing that, I discovered that actually Galileo was a musician, and Kepler used music theory actually to understand the elliptical orbits. And going way back to the Pythagoreans, there was always this this idea that the harmonies found in music, you know, were akin to the harmonies then to be found in physical law.
1: It's tantalizing because. I'm wondering as you talk, how far you can go. To what extent is it a, a kind of a, a loose analogy, where Pythagoras and others have said it's it's like harmony, it's like music. How does it? How close do they get? How much do they overlap in real, in a real way?
2: You know, at first I thought it was just an exercise, um, a fascination of mine. I love music. I love physics. Let's figure out how these things are connected. And naturally, for systems as rich and as complicated as music is, or you know, as simple or beautiful, and as physics is, I'm sh- you know, of course, the point is that you're going to find these connections. And one place where I found these connections had to do with you know, vibration and energy and and harmony and um, and rhythm and improvisation. Um, I know that's something you, you you pay a lot of it spend a, pay a lot of yeah. attention to. And in jazz music, improvisation takes center stage. And it's something that's highly perfected and practiced. The idea is to what extent are physicists in the act of creation when we are, you know, talking to each other and collaborating, is that like a group improvisation? And so like there are all these interesting analogies that could be made. But your question really is the the real at the heart of the matter. You know, is the universe musical in terms of the laws? And so what's interesting is that like when you look at something like string theory. Um, which is something that I've worked on in the past. I mean, string theory definitely has, it's about vibrating strings, and of course, the physics and the quantum mechanics of that. And that to me is a, as musical a theory can get.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Right, the idea being, correct me if I'm wrong, the idea being that all matter in the universe, every particle is a string a minuscule string vibrating at a certain frequency. At one frequency, it's a proton; at another frequency, it's a, an electron. Is that that close? Yeah,
2: yeah. So th- th- that's right. That's kind of like a, one of the central ideas of string theory. That it's like there's a unity. That unity is a string or strings. That's the thing that unifies it all. And that all these different aspects of nature that we that seem to have different qualities, as you said, the mass of this thing, or the you know the spin of this thing, or gravity. Are just different realizations of vibrational patterns um, of this string,
1: and this is borne out in the math that you do to explore it. It's not just a woo-woo idea. What if what if what if everything is made of string? It, it's, it, you've got math to back it up.
2: Yeah, the, so what we call the spectrum of string theory, which are the different realizations of vibrations of the string, the pattern of vibrations, it's realized in, in a mathematical way. The same way I can realize you know, musical frequencies and, and also in a, in a mathematical way as well.
1: When you were talking about vibrations, you reminded me of a story I heard you tell about Thinking of taking a quantum field theory course and you looked at the forward of a book about quantum field theory and you hooked into it because of your musical background.
2: Yeah, the story was I was in the middle of um, the first year of graduate school and, you know, they put us in this room that you feel like you're in a penitentiary, basically. you got the tough physicists who, who, you know, tough in this world is uh, I'm smarter, I can solve problems better than you and you're dumb. And so I, w- I was a dumb kid in that, in, that, in that cohort, okay? You know, for one reason or the other, I, dis- I-, I thought I didn't have what it took, and I, I decided to quit. There are many quitting graduate school stories I have, but th- this was the first one. And I'm packing my books up, and um, as I was doing that, I, I moved to the other cubicles, um, this other desk, and I saw this student had a quantum fuel theory book, so I started reading it. At that point, I knew nothing about quantum fuel theory. And the preface of the book basically say, you know, quantum fields is like the universe playing an orchestra of vibration, except the, um, the orchestra is not made up of violins and instruments. The vibrations and the orchestra are the, the quantum fields that manifest the music of the universe. I'm just paraphrasing what I read. And I said, wait a minute. Physics? Wait, I need to take... Before I quit, I need to take quantum field theory. So I stuck around for another year, and I took quantum field theory.
1: So music, in a way, drew you back into physics.
2: In in this way that I wasn't expecting, yeah. Yes, yeah. And another reason, Mm. actually, what kept me afloat was my... um, Leon Cooper. Um, So my, you know, my mentor, who became the first PhD advisor, um, and he won the Nobel Prize for superconductivity. And Leon was also a, a big music lover. I didn't really know who Cooper was. I didn't know how famous or how big shot he was. He was just this guy with slick, you know, Italian suits and fast cars. And and he used to, in the elevator ride, engage me in the elevator ride. And we'd start talking about music. He'd t- tell me about, you know, he, he was into collecting really nice speakers so he can listen to the music at its purest form. But I started to realize that, hey, you know, if the Nobel Prize winner... Can share common interests in this way. Maybe I'm not that crazy.
1: <laughs> and on your end, you were very taken by John Coltrane, and I, I've heard you talk about a piece of his, "Giant Steps," in a way that sounded like it changed your life. What, what's all that?
2: Yeah. So when I heard Coltrane's music, I suspected that there was some kind of that there was some kind of geometry in in, in Coltrane. A lot of music is usually done in a particular key. So in the key of C, I can write a song, right? That, the C will be the home note, and then I can use C major, Fa Mim Faso right? But oftentimes songs will change their, what we call keys or tonal centers. And in jazz, we call it chord changes. So what Coltrane did actually deliberately in Giant Steps was he actually um, had the key centers, move around a geometrical pattern based on um, symmetric tones. And these um, symmetric tones are what we call, they're called uh, symmetric scales, right? And so Giant Steps basically is, you know, it, it is based on geometry and symmetry. And he got, I believe, from doing my research and talking to David Amram, who knew Coltrane, the great composer, that Coltrane actually got this idea from Einstein. He says Einstein put symmetry at the forefront of, of his thinking about theory. Let me see. I might be able to even play what one of those things look like if you'd sure. like me to. Right. That's a, that outlines the chord movements of that song.
1: So, Coltrane, like you, was really thinking about physics, geometry, mathematics, while he was thinking musically at the same time.
2: Yes, and that's you know one of the things I had to confront, and Coltrane helped me do this, and other luckily other musicians that I came came across my path, Brian Eno being another one, um, was that you know it, you know basically what these artists were doing was expanding their palette. That, you know, in the palette of, and their toolkit. So it didn't take away from the fact that when Coltrane was practicing or thinking about composition, um, the traditional ideas, you know, that he also mastered, but he said, let me expand my toolkit and my palette to physics and Einstein. And, you know, so he, it was very, a very, um, for lack of a better word, open-minded or inclusive approach to, um, to, to his music.
1: That seems to reflect your own thinking and your own way of working because you've mentioned improvising and you've mentioned where analogies don't quite fit. That's where you find excitement. That's where you find new stuff, creativity. You reach into that unknown realm.
2: Y- yes, um, but one of the things that I'm still see I'm appreciative of that and where I can do it meaning you know employ improvisation into into my music and into like my, my research methods my, my inquiry as a, as a you know research physicist um, but one question I have for you is how do you do it better <laughs>
1: I experience improvisation in the presence of other improvisers even if it's just a conversation between me and another person and I think of it as a partnership and I think I think you have the same response to another person which is that whatever they say is interesting because it can lead somewhere and I try to go where they're going so I, I get the impression you do that with your fellow scientists.
2: Yeah. So my buddy Jaron Lanier and now colleague, um, who was um, is a pioneer of virtual reality, and um, um, while well, in the middle of my postdoc years when I was at Stanford, um, we were being hit left and right with with big puzzles and conundrums. You know, do we live in a landscape of vacuum and string theory? Is there a multiverse? What's dark matter? What's dark? So all these things. And, well, one of the, some of the ideas were getting so um, out there and absurd for what, in particular, what dark matter was. So Jared and I, we used to go on these, um, I mean, Jared's a computer scientist and, of course, a multi-instrumentalist. So to say that he is not a a professional research physicist, and here I am trying to make my way as a postdoc. But anyway, we used to go on these walks on Berkeley Hills, and just literally, it was like there was no judgment. We would, like, spoof off and, like, crazy, I, crazy. We'd say, okay, let's um, actually come up with the most ridiculous idea for dark matter right now. And then some <laughs> one of us would, like, then say something, and literally, and so one idea was, like, imagine, like, really, the dark masses, you know, the dark matter is really, there's some, there's some cosmic observer out there. Um, and John said, like, what, like an alien? I was like, yeah, like an alien. And like the, the observer, you know, the act of it making an observation induces this extra inertia. And that inertia manifests itself as dark matter. And then he would then say, oh, look, like, okay, so do the aliens have a quantum computers? Oh, yeah, they have quantum computers. Okay, they got quantum computers. Okay, what are they doing with the quantum computer to make the dark matter work? Well, they're making VR video games, of course. <laughs> <laughs> this thing gets into my book and my second book, and now it's in wide magazine
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. that's a, that's an improvisation and it's entertaining, but it also expands your thinking, I imagine. I mean you don't you don't publish that as a research paper, but it could lead to one.
2: That's exactly the point. It definitely um, widens the um, the view of pot- of possible ideas and the game here is um you know if it opens up some some new window into look then okay you can forget the crazy idea and now focus and use all the traditional techniques and mathematics and all the stuff that are the tools that you know a good physicist is supposed to have to interrogate that you
1: know you you mentioned uh, an idea of Feynman's in one of your books. It goes something like this. When a photon takes a path that you can observe, the path the photon takes is the sum of all the paths possible that it has actually taken, that it takes all these paths, and you sum them all up somehow, and that equals the path that what the hell does that mean?
2: I wish I I wish I knew the answer. That's actually one of the <laughs> fundamental, you know, conundrums in quantum mechanics, what makes quantum mechanics so weird that it seems as if if you believe the mathematics, which turns out to be to give you the correct answers, you know, one particle has to consider or seems to traverse all possible paths to get from point A to point B. And what we observe is actually it makes one path, right? But in the quantum world, it considers or moves all um, all these different paths. And this is um, one of the things I I played with in terms of analogies was to say, well, since one has a hard time interpreting what the electron is doing, let's make it a musical analogy then. What if the electron is actually improvising? In the sense that an improvisation is that maybe what's going on when you're improvising in music, you're, you're... you're putting through a solo is that you're targeting the beginning note and the note you want to get to, and you're, you're considering many possible paths. You
1: know? Oh yes, I see what you mean. You know, that that's so interesting. You know where you are, you know where you want to get to be, and you take a random walk almost to get there.
2: Yeah. So, for example, if I go from from like G to D, right? I mean, I can do. I can do. Of course, I want to go to C because that's the one.
0: You know,
2: so I mean, there are all these possible paths. That one can traverse. It seems to me that
1: the idea that all the possible paths a particle can take, adding up to the one you observe, is mathematically a useful idea that can be used in various situations. It sounds sort of impossible to me because all the possible paths sound infinite. How can you add them up to something specific? But how, how could that be useful in any case, in any, any given situation that you're trying to figure out? How would you use that math?
2: Oh, oh, very good question. How does the system figure out to get from point A to point B if there are infinite paths, for example, right? That's a good, and it could be that we need, might need new types of math to be able to tame that infinity, And a big part of what goes on in physics, in modern physics these days, are ways of taming. We see these infinities show up, actually, even Mm -hmm. what Feynman did. And so even after Feynman um, and his colleagues discovered quantum field theory, they found that this way of summing up paths led to infinities, actually. They spent all this time trying to attain these infinities. And Feynman said, you know what, we're just... you probably, we're just shoving it under the rug. <laughs> and that's something that we're still, in physics today, we're still trying to figure out how to tame these infinity, And perhaps there might be new ways, new mathematical tools, or even math to, to, to create, maybe, to deal with those infinities.
1: When we come back from our break, Stefan Alexander talks about his new book, Fear of a Black Universe. In it, he argues that to make breakthroughs into the many unanswered mysteries of the universe, physicists should embrace ideas that the mainstream may see as wacky. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science, including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook.
0: Today.
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Stefan Alexander. Your latest book, Fear of a Black Universe, which is, as I take it, you don't mean that fear of a darkening sky as the stars and the galaxies drift apart. But you're talking about race relations, right?
2: Uh, yeah, what I'm doing is I actually, I'm talking about the category of of um of black to be stigmatized and then i'm using the word black as basically a, a a space filler for that word stigmatized and then to realize that um you know in physics and in science you can have black ideas you can have ideas or um that that um can stigmatize you that can get you kicked out of the club you know you know you're not a real scientist you're doing woo woo all this stuff um and then of of course like you know in terms of race relations being black is a state can be a state of stigma or being the other is a state of stigma if you're an immigrant you're you know there's some stigma there and but i'm also saying that you know if you're a scientist and you have an idea that is not that some people people might say okay this guy's lost it. This guy's a kook, and it is true that there are ideas where people have lost it and people are kooks. Okay, um, but part of the book was to say this: you know, there are ideas that you should not, that maybe you might want. You should embrace this. So the book was actually about embracing, and, and embracing, and celebrating um, those moments where we could feel like an outsider, where we could entertain an idea that will induce fear of being kicked out of the club and not getting funded or not getting promoted. Um, and the book is, you know, partially about talking about that. I would say 90% of the book though is about, you know, is about the future of physics and, you know, sort of surveying like all the, you know, much of the unsolved problems in my field, particle physics and cosmology. Yeah. But, um, but it's also about maybe, you know, to advance science and to solve, some of the problems that we're stuck on for decades, maybe we might also need to embrace thoughts and ideas. Even if as well-trained as a scientist as you are, right, you should not be afraid of those ideas. And you're not going to die from entertaining it.
1: So it's about fear of the other, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what's not familiar, and the avoidance of it.
2: Yeah. And the fear of people saying, if you talk to that person, then I don't I'm not going to respect you uh, or that, per, you know, because that person, they're they're doing physics the wrong way. Or, but this applies. Like, so this guy, you'll be penalized or shunned or stigmatized if you go and talk to others. That's also a part of um, something that that. um. I feel strongly about that, you know, no, you, you should get, give people a chance and talk to them. And then you decide on your own whether you agree or disagree. But don't, let, don't tell me to not talk to that person.
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I was trying to say before about improvisation. It's basically a healthy thing where you lend the other person the respect of listening and valuing whatever they have to say, at least for the purpose of the conversation. But what have you experienced as a person of color in science? I mean, I know that you've reached the point where you're the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. What, what's your work there about?
2: Yeah, my work there about was I was so inspired um, by so many of the great teachers I had of all, you know, different. Um, just the idea of like, you know, this. my teacher, Mr. Kaplan, my high school teacher who, I, you know, I talk about. Um, just that I just felt this need to kind of, you know, do for other students like that, what these teachers did for me. And mm-hmm. the National Society of Black Physicists was a platform where I, you know, I had some ability to to, to do that on a larger scale. So, you know, so to me, just like really seeing young, talent, talented um, African-American students um, in physics and just being able to To work with others in the organization to support their success and their excellence despite, you know, the challenges that they're facing to not kind of let's like surrender to that, but to say, you know, we're part of something bigger and we stand on the shoulders of others that came before us who, who sometimes even gave their lives so that we can be able to do physics or go to college. The other thing that that um, I I find to be interesting is that you know when you look at jazz and as a student of jazz and as somebody that is still I still feel like I'm a baby in that in that music, um, the level of discipline, excellence, um, practice, um, intellectual sharpness, creativity that the greats of jazz you know the Coltranes, the Miles Davis, the Dizzy Gillespie, you know uh, Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, when you look at these greats. They all had this quality of excellence and hard work and diligence. And I sort of felt like, you know, that is very much part of the African-American tradition, our tradition, um, demonstrated through that music. You cannot become a great jazz musician unless you had these elements Mm. and you, you know, Mm. um, and to just basically say, look, you know, in, in physics and in science, you know, we can um, take some of those qualities in that tradition into the sciences, right? But also, you know, um, play and exploration and inclusivity. One of the things about jazz that's really unique and it's not unique but special is that in a cut kind of in a jam session, when I was younger, you know, um, I used to go to Smalls Jazz Club when I was younger in the 90s. Um, and like Roy, you know, it'd be like Ravi Coltrane, Roy Hargrove, like, you know, some like tremendously, you know, some great musician, and they'd call you on the stage and you would suck and not you get, get a note out of your instrument. I'm exaggerating. But the point is that they would <laughs> let you play with them. So there was a true inclusivity in that tradition as well. So it's like the excellence along with the sort of like, um, be at the table with us. You know, be at the table with us when we're making, um, don't just be in the audience while I'm playing for you, but come on the table and, you know, and there was an opportunity to really learn some of the craft there as well.
1: Did you have that as you were studying to be a physicist? Were you included?
2: Um, the answer is, in some respects, yes. You know, um, one of the things I found really amazing, I was so fortunate, was that when I was even in grad schools and a lot of my classmates, I had dreadlocks. And you know, I had my way of talking and, you know, a Trinidadian Bronx accent. Um you know, it was kind of kooky in my own way. I still am. But I think many of, I think many of my classmates, I mean, some even admitted to me today, they, like, they read me in this way as if, like, Stefan is not smart. He's not really a physicist. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't fit the bill. There are all these, I think, pro, uh, projections or whatever that we, we all have. Um, and I certainly didn't feel like I looked and talked and acted like a physicist, right? But and what I did find was even though that was going on, Another interesting thing was the very top physicists. So at that time, the Nobel Prize winner in physics in my department, Leon Cooper. And then the guy who later on would win the Nobel Prize, Mike Kostelitz, who were both at Brown when I was a graduate student, they really embraced me. Like, they saw something. So I, so the answer is yes. I mean, all throughout my career, I would say that um, I was overlooked maybe, and maybe some of my crazy ideas were met more, not met with um with um, intrigue or curiosity, but were met with, this guy doesn't know physics, clearly, Uh, you Mm -hmm. know. (laughs) Actually, maybe I didn't. Um, (laughs) But what I found, though, was that while I could have maybe complained about that, it didn't didn't feel good to feel accepted, to not feel accepted in that similar way by your peers. But what really also helped me uh, was that some of the very top physicists in those spaces really did, they saw some something, whatever it is they saw, but they, they engaged me as well. And that, I don't think I would have gotten through it if I didn't have those individuals. Um, and I think it's important to, for me to always remember to acknowledge those negative things and try to do something about it, but to be productive in doing that and, and to celebrate those that, that, that were acting in, in the right way.
1: You make me think of Richard Feynman, who seems universally regarded as a great mind who spoke with an accent that was a, a, a sort of a New York accent from far rockaway but i think he might have made it up a little bit because his sister doesn't talk that way and and i never heard anybody from far rockaway sound like that either but i think he he wanted he wanted to be a little different i i think i at least he didn't correct it anyway whatever his accent really was he didn't he didn't make it sound conventionally middle american and his ideas were he explored the far reaches of physics and and the way the world is put together and also was very fond of making jokes and constructed jokes carefully like a like a stand-up comedian the, un, an unconventional way to give a lecture.
2: Yes, but there was so much in, those, in that that style, and I really have tried to adopt that style in my own teaching, and, and I find that it's it's hard to pull off, by the way, but it can be very effective. At least it doesn't put people to sleep.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you haven't put me to sleep today. This has been really fascinating. I wish we had more time to talk because I want I, there's more I want to get out of you. We always end our show with seven quick questions, generally to do in some rough way with communication. Are you game?
2: I'm going to try.
1: And the first question doesn't necessarily relate to your work, to your music or your physics, but to anything. What do you wish you really understood?
2: Mm, um, I wish I really understood how the phenomenon of consciousness is related to um, to physics, um, yeah.
1: No, there's a whole other podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just let that sit. I'm because I have a, about 50 questions I want to ask you about that answer.
2: You can always bring me on again.
1: It sounds like a good idea. How do you tell someone they have their facts
2: wrong? Um, yeah, I well, I I, I um, tell them what I understand about what they said. And then provide an alternative, alternative um, way that's more in line with what I think is right.
1: <laughs> Next question: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: Okay, someone once asked me, "Where are you from?"
1: Not expecting you to say the Bronx, or
2: what? <laughs> right? And then I said, "Well, I was. I said that's a good question. I was born in Trinidad and I moved to the Bronx, and I, you know, so that's you know." So where are you from? No and then the, then this person goes that's where your body is from where are you from Oh
1: that that's the ha, 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 ha. that the, that that was that was the strange question Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker You don't It's kind of hard Yeah yeah Let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person,
2: what a compliment!
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence is knowing that I know something, but I don't know it all. If it, if something that I'm engaging in, let's say, um, what gives me confidence, is like I know I might know something enough to talk about it, but I know I don't know it all.
1: That's interesting, and that gives you confidence. It
2: because... gives me confidence, so at least I can I can cough up and just say, "Listen, I don't know it all, but this is what I know."
1: Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Last question. What book
2: changed your life? Oh, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman.
1: Uh, it, had, it did a lot for my life, too. That's, a, that's an, an amazing book. Well, you're an amazing person. I'm, I've really enjoyed playing with you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Hey Alan, it's a real, it's a real pleasure, it's a real honor. Um, I was, I was blown away when I found out that you wanted to interview me. And I was like blown away about that. So thank mm-hmm. you. And um, well, I hope there's an opportunity for you and I to connect. And um, I'd love to give you a personal copy signed of my book to you.
1: Thank you. I'd love that. i I'll give you mine too in return. Thank you. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Stefan Alexander is a professor at Brown University, where he heads the Stefan Alexander Theory Lab. His most recent book is Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. His earlier book, The Jazz of Physics, explored his ideas about the link between music and the structure of the universe. He's also the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chame. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kate Crawford. She argues that artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent.
0: I've actually gone to all of the places where artificial intelligence is generated. What was really clear to me is that it's certainly not artificial. AI is made of people. It's made of minerals. It's made of salt and coal. And so in that sense, it's it's really the opposite of artificial. It's
1: profoundly material. But at the same time, We think of it as intelligent, as though somehow we're creating these brains that live in sort of disembodied space. But it's not human intelligence or even really like human intelligence. So in many ways, I think this term, artificial intelligence, has become a bit of a cognitive trap where we tend to assume that these systems are somehow smarter than
0: they are and also less impactful on the planet.
1: Kate Crawford and why AI isn't what you think it is next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.